Mark chapter number 11, and uh, we're down to verse number 12. Last time we went through these just kind of in a, we were focused in on uh, verse uh, 1 to, to 11, and then we kind of ran into 12 to 21, This, and I just want to go get the details, especially here about the cursing of the fig tree, um, and it's critical not to miss this. Because of Clarence Larkin many, many moons ago, many years ago, and the misidentification of who, what the fig tree represents, there's the identifying the fig tree, if you properly identify the fig tree, you have no problem with this passage. If you don't and you misidentify it, then you have great trouble and great angst, and we'll get to that as we go along here about the fig tree. So, again here, uh, Mark, uh, not a lot of detail here. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all carry uh, details in this section. Uh, the, the fig tree issue here, we find this in Matthew and in uh, Mark predominantly. Uh, and, but yet, again, as Mark's details here as we come down through, in his first appearance, uh, coming down out of Bethany Page and Bethany, out of Mount Olives Inn, we, uh, it is called the Triumphal Entry. Actually, rather, it's the Meek and Lowly Entry. Uh, Mark does not even identify Zechariah 9.9 as being fulfilled like Matthew and Luke and John do. He rather quotes uh, Psalms 118. He goes a completely different way because, again, Mark's presentation of the Messiah is that as son who serves. He's the servant. And so again, we're looking at his activities. So the first thing that we see, we're the week before Calvary. And that's, uh, that's critical here. He, we, see his, we saw his presentation. He goes and presents himself. Verse 11, And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked round about upon all things, and now the eventide was come. He went out unto Bethany with the twelve. So after he comes down and presents himself, now he goes into the temple. And it's eventide, so it's late in the day. And he just looks around. Now Matthew and Luke have him doing a lot of activity there. Again, not Mark. Mark's moving. Let's move. Let's move. Let's move. Uh, we got 16 chapters, and that's about six chapters too many. And let's move. Let's move. Let's move. And yet what happens here is he's looking around the temple, the heart of the nation of Israel. That's where their heart is. So he's looking around and he's seeing the nation's heartbeat. And at what he sees, verse 15, and they come to Jerusalem and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrow the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. So he sees commercial corruption. He's, he doesn't find a place that's worshiping him. Rather, we're in corporate, we're in a commercial uh, corruption. We're in verse uh, 16, and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And, and he taught, saying unto them, it, Is it not written? My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And that's exactly what has happened. Now, verse 15, 16, and 17 is the next day. Verse 12, 
he's, verse 11, he's then looking around. He went in. He, the king is doing an inspection of the troops, if you will. That's what he's doing. He's going in. He's looking around the, uh, the, the heart of the nation, that temple, and all he sees is corruption. He's a, he sees exploitation. By the way, the money changers, if you think about Deuteronomy, where Moses lays out three times a year, they're to go to Jerusalem. They're to bring their, their, that uh, vacation tithe. But if, you can't, if it's too far to drive it there, like in the flocks and everything, you take them to market, sell, and bring the money. The problem is, is sometimes it was in U.S. dollars and it needed to be in pesos. So what do we have to do? We have to convert that. That's the money changers. If you think of, uh, uh, I just had the word. What are they called? <sighs> Currency exchanges. I get there. Okay, you know they in in going through O'Hare you used to see them all the time. Currency exchange, little hut, go in, exchange to get the currency that you need. That's the idea of there. But what have they done? Now they're they're in justice. Instead of it being a straight dollar for dollar, now it's a dollar plus on a, on a tax. So there's injustice there. There's not the equity. So he sees the hypocrisy and the pride. Now he's going to go, so he leaves. Verse 11, it's even tied. They go back to Bethany. So they leave. They go back to Bethany. They have dinner, spend the night, get up, verse 12. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. So now they're on their way back. They're leaving Bethany. They're headed to Jerusalem, verse 15, and they come to Jerusalem. So they're on their way back. They're headed to Jerusalem. And you know what? He's hungry. So looking down the road, what does he see? And, see, uh, and seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves. He's looking for something to eat, and he sees a fig tree in the distance. Now, there's, there, there's metaphors here that are pictures being painted in that what is he looking for? He's looking for fruit from his nation. But rather, he sees a tree. He sees that fig tree down the road. In Matthew, uh, it says that the fig tree is by the road. It's on the road. It's, so it's not off in someone's vineyard or anything like that. It's right there. He comes. He's looking for fruit. He sees leaves, but he's expecting fruit. Verse 13. If haply he might find anything thereon, and when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of the fig was not yet. He finds nothing. He find, so what does he see? He sees a tree with leaves on it, which would indicate that it should have fruit. So he, fi he finds a profession of the tree saying, I have something for you to eat. And yet he gets there and there's nothing. And, that, and, and, and the reason is, is for the time of the figs was not yet. The reason is there's a timing issue here in the picture. So what does he do? Verse 14, and Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. He curses the fig tree. And in the earth, in the earth, earthly ministry of Christ, this is the only miracle of judgment or of destruction 
All the other miracles are restorations and fixes and so forth. But here he sees this tree professing to have fruit, yet the reality of it is there is none, so he curses it. So what, is, what happens? Verse 15, and they come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of threes. Ye have made it, I should say, ye, the group, the nation. So he's got a picture going on here, and we've got to catch it. And this cursing of the fig tree. By the way, verse 19, And when even was come, he went out of the city, and in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. The curse hit it immediately. It doesn't wait, doesn't wait 10 years, doesn't wait 2 months, doesn't wait 30 days, doesn't wait the next. It's immediately. And Peter said, calling to remember, saying unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou uh, cursed is withered away. So there's a picture here of judgment on the fig tree. And the fig tree is then where everybody then gets all upset because mainline Christianity says, come back to Judges 9, just to refresh our memory about this. Judges 9. Mainline Christianity talks about the fig tree. And again, it goes back to Clarence Larkin and it goes back to uh, Judges 9 goes back to a misunderstanding of all that's happening. And the tree... <clears throat> Good evening. You guys okay? Slide down and give him some room. There you go. I was, she'll get there. There you go. All right, good. We're, we're, uh, we're in Judges 9. Okay, so in Mark 11, when he curses the fig tree... If you fail to properly identify the fig tree, you're going to have some problems. In the scriptures, there are four trees in scripture that, that represent the nation of Israel. Three of them, three of these trees, are found in the Garden of Eden. The fourth tree shows up after the fall. Judges chapter 9. Again, what happens is, is if we fail to properly identify what the fig tree represents in the life of Israel, you run into trouble. And you, and, uh, because what did he just do to the fig tree in Mark 9? He cursed it to no more fruit. Peter sees it, verse 8, uh, 20, and says, it is dead. It's dried up forever, actually. It's never coming back. So when you get in here to, to Judges 9, and, and if you look here at Judges 9, if you look at verse 7, and when they told it to Jotham, he went and stood in the top of Mount Gerizim and lifted up his voice and cried and said unto them, Hearken unto me, ye men of Shechem, that God may hearken unto you. The trees went forth on a time to anoint a king over them. And they said unto the olive tree, Reign thou over us. Now, Trees in Scripture, context is king. Context is going to tell you what we're talking about. 
okay? Trees in Scripture can represent peoples and nations and a whole bunch of different things. Here, you've got Jotham is going to paint a picture here, a, a parable if you want to call it that, of the Gentiles looking for a nation to rule over them. And hold on to Judges 9. Run back there to Mark 11 real quick. Catch this. Stick something in Judges 9, or just hold it, and we'll come right back to it. In Mark 11 and verse number 17, Mark 11, 17, the Lord is sa says to him there in the temple, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer. So what's happening here, go back to Judges 9, is Jotham is going to paint a picture here of the Gentiles out there calling, looking for a nation to rule over them. And actually what they're looking for is the nation of Israel. That's why they're going to go to the olive tree. The Gentile nations, Genesis chapter 12, Genesis 12, verse 3, the Abrahamic covenant, the Lord says to Abraham, uh, in verse 2, And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. The all families is Genesis 10, all of the Gentiles. So when you come to Judges 9, the Gentiles know we want the blessing of God, so who are we going to go to? We're going to go to Israel. He paints a picture. Now we're in Judges 9. Judges 9, verse 8. Where did they go? They said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said unto them, should I leave my fatness wherewith by me they honor God and man and go to be promoted over the trees? The olive tree, it represents the spiritual access to God. How is the Gentiles going to access God? They have to go through the nation of Israel. Okay? That's why we read Genesis 12, 3. How are the families of the earth going to be blessed? Through Israel. If you think about uh, the great illustration of it is Solomon when he builds the temple. The doors into the most holy are made out of uh, olive wood. And again, olive, there's fatness there. You got the picture of the Holy Spirit and the olive and so forth. But it represents the issue of the right to accessing God. It's the spiritual access to God. Then verse uh, 10, And the tree said to the fig tree, Come thou and reign over us. But the fig tree said unto them, Should I forsake my sweetness? and my good fruit, and go to be promoted over the trees. Then said the trees unto the vine, Come thou and reign over us. And the vine said unto them, Should I leave my wine, which cheereth God and man, and go to be promoted over the trees? And then said all the trees unto the bramble, Come thou and reign over us. And the bramble said unto the, the trees, If in truth ye anoint me, king, they, no problem, okay? But the point here is, so the olive tree, that picture, uh, come over to Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5. You can hold on to ju Judges if you need to. 
The olive tree, the picture of the Holy Spirit, that spiritual access to God. By the way, notice the olive, the fig, and the vine all said no. They weren't functioning properly. They should have known how does God, how does the Gentiles access God? Through us. They should have been saying yes, but they, they're not there. They're turning into that bramble. Isaiah 5. <clears throat> so you've got the fig tree. The fig tree represents the religious life of Israel. The vine tree represents the national life of Israel. The bramble is the apostasy. Okay? Again, the olive, vine, and fig are all in the Garden of Eden. The bramble shows up at the cursing with Adam after the fall. The, th the thistles and the weeds and all of that. Look at the vine. Isaiah 5, verse 1. Now will I sing to my well-beloved the song of my beloved, touching his vineyard. My well-beloved with a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. Again, the national life of Israel, that's what we're picturing. Keep reading. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. And he, uh, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. Notice what he does. He gets a vineyard, he plants it, he protects it, puts a hedge about it. He, gets, he, he comes in and he, uh, that separates it away from everybody else. He fertilizes the ground, he gets rid of all of the stones. He builds a wine press in there. He's, it's ready to produce fruit. And yet what's it produce? Wild. It's, it brought forth wild grapes. Verse 3, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not yet done? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. I mean, I did everything. I fertilized it. I brought it all about. It's all right here. Verse 5, and now go to I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard, and I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down, and I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned nor digged, but there should come up briars and thorns, and I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Why? It's under that fifth course of judgment of Leviticus 26. It's under the Gentiles. I'm going to tear all the walls down, all of its protection. I'm going to let the Gentiles have it. Now watch verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the church, the body of Christ. No. Who is it? It is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his pleasant plan, and he looked for judgment, but... Behold oppression for righteousness, but behold, behold a cry. So the vineyard is who? The house of Israel, Judah. Come over to Psalms 80. Psalms 80. Psalms chapter 80. So, the, so what happens, and again, Clarence Larkin did this. People picked it up. It's, I pulled two commentaries out of Bible believers, supposedly, and they all say the fig 
is the national life and the vine the religious life. Thanks for playing, because we're going to have trouble in Mark 13 in a minute. It's the opposite. The fig is the religious life. The vine is the national life. Psalms 80. Psalms 80. i got to get there. Verse 7. Turn us again, O God of hosts, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Well, who did he bring out of Egypt? The nation of Israel. That's who he brought out of Egypt. Okay, that's, their birth was the exodus. Then he says, And hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparest room before it and didst cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it, and the boughs thereof were like the goodly cedars. All of the national life of Israel there. John 15, the Lord says, I am the true vine. I'm the true guy. I'm the true nation. So when we come back now to, to Mark, but on your way, and we talk about the fig... Well, just go back to Mark. We'll just do that. Go back to Mark. The fig, the fig, think about the fig tree. Mark 11. In the Garden of Eve, Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, they fall. What's the first thing they do? Operation fig leaf. They cover themselves, but what are they covering up? Their failure they're covering up their own failure here. They're trying to do something to keep God pleased with them. That's i.e. religion. That's what religion does. So they're covering up their failures. They're, and it's their own, and they're doing it with their own effort. And it's interesting that they would pick fig leaves. Because fig leaves are very scratchy. You have to wear long sleeves and gloves and hats and an asbestos suit to deal with them. Okay? But what happens with, but what does religion tell you? We were talking Sunday about the philosophy of men. One of them is, is if it doesn't hurt, it ain't right. It's got to hurt. How much does it hurt? It's got to really hurt. What does religion say? You got to really get in there or else it, you're not doing it right. You don't have enough faith. Sorry. So the fig here, now if you come back to Mark 11 and just watch what he's doing here. The fig tree is going to represent Israel's religion. Come over to, hold on to Mark 11. Come to James 1. God only gave man one religion, and he gave it to the nation of Israel through Moses. And the fig tree represents that religion that God gave to Moses. By the way, what did he give to Moses? The law. But he's been teaching the law all the way through. Adam and Eve, he taught them the law. Abraham, he taught them the law. Jacob, Isaac, taught them the law. He's always been teaching them. Why? Because Romans 7, the law of God is righteous. But what was with Moses? Moses was the, if you do it, then we're good. If you don't, I'm going to curse you. The law is designed to push them, Romans 10 says, to Christ. 
The law was designed to move them. Galatians, Paul says that the law was added to the promise because of the transgression. What does the law say? You're guilty. It doesn't tell you how to fix it to where you're no longer guilty. It just says you're guilty. Look at James 1, verse 27. So, and by the way, religion and scriptures are always, almost always used in a very negative sense. Because it's a, it's a reference to man's effort to try and get right with God. Man effort to do it. Don't come to God God's way. We're going to come to God our way. James 1.27. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. To visit the fatherless and widows in their afflictions and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now... You read that, first of all, James. James is writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, so we know where it's going. We're a tribulation saint. But the, the fatherless and the widows is our direct references to what's happening in the book of the Revelation. And being unspotted from the world, there's Roman, uh, Revelation 3, Revelation 16, Revelation 13. So it's something that you can't do on your own. Who do you have to have help you? You got to have the Messiah. You got to have. So then, what do they do with it? Well, come back to Mark. What did they do? What did I tell you? Did I tell you something yet? Get Mark 7. Mark 7. Mark 7 and Mark 11. Mark 7. We'll just go there first. Watch what they do with that pure religion. And by the way, that's the only time it's ever called that. Because, again, religion in Scripture is usually being referenced to uh, the Baal worship and all of that. <clears throat> you got Mark 7? All right, go back over there real quick to Mark 11. <laughs> Sorry. Verse 17. You got to catch this. And, and I'm kind of going through this. And, again, we've been through this, I know, quite a bit in, in this. But look at Mark 11:17. What did he say? My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer. But ye have made it a den of thieves. They've completely corrupted it into a place of, well, a den of thieves. It's not right. It's not where it's supposed to be. They've made it into a place of desolation. Look over at Matthew 23. Matthew 23. Matthew 23 and verse 38. This is where we're at here. Matthew 23, 38. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Look at that. He says, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for everybody. It's now your house. And it's desolate. For I say unto you, verse 39... Ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Well, what did they just say in Mark 11? Hosanna, blessed is he, here he comes. See? But their house is desolate. So when you come, come back there to Mark 7, watch them do it. Mark 7. You see, they've taken that pure religion of God and had completely corrupted it. Mark 7, Matthew 15, but Mark 7, verse 3. For, and, the, and, you know, people got an idea that the Lord was this meek and mild and, you know, just a wimpy little dude. 
And there's, just, there's no way. He, woe unto you, Pharisees, you hypocrites, you, you generation of vipers. I mean, he, was a, he wasn't a pushover. So he's dealing with the Pharisees. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, verse 3, except they wash their hands, oft eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. Verse 7, howbeit in vain do they worship me. He's in that temple looking for the heart, looking around, looking for who's worshiping him, and he's not finding it anywhere. So the next thing we see in Mark 11 is him curse the fig tree, the religious life of Israel. He just cursed it. Verse 7, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandments of God, ye hold the traditions of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. Verse 13, The result, making the word of God of none effect through your traditions, which ye have delivered, and many such things, uh, such like things do ye. So when you come back here to Mark 11, that, the fig tree, the cursing of the fig tree, has to do with this issue of laying out a curse on the religious life of Israel. Okay? So Mark eleven thirteen, and seeing a fig tree afar off, he sees, he sees that tree down there. It's got leaves. Having leaves, he came, if haply, by the way, haply there, H-A-P-L-Y, that doesn't mean happy. It means by chance, or per chance, there it is. He might find any, anything thereon. He's looking for fr something to eat. He's looking for fruit. He gets there, and it's barren. The leaves indicate fruit. They indicate life. Okay? So the olive tree, the access to God, the fig tree, the religious life given to the nation. The vine, there's the national. By the way, in Isaiah, that vineyard, he put a tower in it. Tower in Scripture has to do with a religion. In Genesis 11, man's building that Babel, and they got a tower to reach up. And you, go, you study out tower and through Scripture and Psalms, and David will say, the tower of the Lord, there, it is. The, there he is. So you're talking about religion here. Now, come on. The, why this is important is because of Mark 13. So look over at Mark 13. Mark 13, verse 28. Mark 13, 28. Well, watch what the Lord does now. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When her branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is near. So ye, in like manner, when ye shall see these things come to pass, know that it is nigh even at the doors. Okay? So what you have, look, notice that. What did he do to the fig tree in Mark 11? He cursed it forever. Verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 14, 11, 14. No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And then yet in Mark 13, he's got the budding of the fig tree. If you misidentify the fig tree, again, which is what most of all evangelicalism does, they say 
it's the national life, then you got a problem with what the Lord did to it in chapter 11, 14. Because in 11, 14, Peter sees it in verse 20 and 21, dried up and dead. He just killed the nation. If that's nation, it's not nation. It's their religion. And we'll, I'm going to show you in just a second here. So then what is hap- what ha- what they you when they say that it's a national life, where they people point back to is 1948, when Israel became a nation. The problem is, is in 1948, what is God doing? Church, the body of Christ, dispensation of grace. He's not do- the Lord is not interested in the re- in the earth at all right now. He's not in the real estate business. He's he's not. He's what? He's in the heavenly places business. He's informing the church, the body of Christ. That's why he gives you and I the mandates in our ambassadorship to keep our, set our affections on things above, not on the things on the earth. The earth is going to go, it belongs to Israel, not to you and I. We belong in the heavenly places. But the thing is, is if you miss it, and then you say, well, the, well Israel becoming a nation in 1948, the tree budded, then the generation, and, and by the way, what Mark 13 saying is the generation that sees that fig tree bud, they're the ones that are going to witness the second coming of the Lord. That's when we get over there, we'll study that out. That's what he's saying. Problem is, is that's not 1948. Because his second coming is like seven years, you know, it's pr- supposed to be pretty quick. So then what do you get? You get all the daters. 1988. 88 reasons why he's coming in 88. You guys weren't even around, but, okay. But, you know, and then, and what was the one? 2022, here he comes, boom, you know, you can't do that. Why? Because it's not us. It's not what he's doing today, okay? So the fig tree, come back to chapter 11. The fig tree, if the fig tree is Israel becoming a nation, then what did the Lord do to it in 1114? He just cursed it. Never to be a nation ever again. So then prophecy can't be fulfilled. Okay? Now I'll tell you how they get around it. You know what they say? You and I are spiritual Israel. And that today, God is establishing his kingdom in the hearts and minds of men. Show me a verse that says that. We've been talking about that all through here as we've gone. There is no verse that says that. It's preacher hyperbole because they misidentify the fig tree as nation rather than religion. But more importantly, they fail to rightly divide their word, the the word of truth. If you think about what's happening here, when Christ curses the fig tree, Mark 11, come over to Hebrews with me. You've got to put your thinking caps on. It's just Wednesday night. In Hebrews 8, what happens to the old covenant, the law of Moses? It goes away. It vanishes away, doesn't it? Hebrews 8, look, if you will, there, uh, start in verse 7. Actually, if you verse 6. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is a mediator of a better covenant, 
which was established upon better promises. By the way, the theme of the book of Hebrews is better covenant, better promises, better things. The, word, the better word is the best word here. All right? By the way, this is a book of heat to the Hebrews. This, Paul doesn't write this book. God writes it. The human author is unknown. Okay? I have my own personal private opinions on who wrote it, but it doesn't matter. First word in the book is God. God wrote it, and it's written to the Hebrews. Verse 7. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. What's the first covenant? That's the old covenant. That's the law of Moses, the Mosaic law. But it was what? Faultless. How? It didn't provide a means of redemption for, the, for Israel that was permanent. They, every year they had to do the blood of bulls and goats. Every time they messed up, they had to go do something. That's what the book of Hebrews is saying. Hebrews, don't go back to the old covenant. We're moving to the new covenant. Verse 8, for finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days cometh, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, Ezekiel 36. This isn't you. You're not the house of Israel. You're not the house of Judah. You're the church, the body of Christ. Verse 9, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind, and I will write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. That's why in Matthew 28, in the millennial kingdom, they're out there in the nations. They're not te- it's not Jewish evangelism. It's them out in the nations preaching. Verse 12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Verse 13 is the verse. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to what? Vanish away. Mark 11. What did he just do? What's he doing? He's on his way in to go to Calvary to shed the blood of the new covenant that's going to establish the new. And what did he just do to the old one in 11.14? It's done. I just cursed that bad boy. It's never going to rise again. How do you know that? Peter says, Lord, look, man, that mad thing's dead. It just, it's firewood now. It's kindling. You see what's happening here. So when you go back to Mark 11, that religious life is cursed. And it's going to be replaced with the new covenant. And he's setting the stage for this with them. So when you, I don't know where we're at. Verse 14. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat, uh, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. So what's going on? That, that old covenant is toast. The religious life is done. Verse 15, And they come to Jerusalem, 
And Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold dove. He goes in the temple. Now, this is the second time that he goes into the temple. He's already done this one time. Now he's going to do it a second time. Okay, now come to John chapter 2 and let's see the first time. John chapter 2. The first time he does it is at the very beginning of his ministry. Now he's not, in John 2 at the very beginning, he doesn't do everything that he does in Mark 11. He, there's a prime picture left out in John 2 because he doesn't do it in John 2 because he's at the very beginning. John 2 verse 1, in the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And we have the, him turning the water to wine. The first miracle that the Lord does, that Peter does, and that Paul does are all dispensational pictures of their ministry. The water to wine, his coming kingdom and reign, and the restoration of joy and uh, happiness and, and just rejoicement to Israel is the picture. Verse 13, and the Jews' Passover, by the way, that should have been the Lord's Passover, but it's what? The Jews' Passover, that's not a good thing. They've corrupted it. Was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that, by the way, the, the, the marriage at Cana, the water to wine, that, this is the beginning of, verse 11, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee. This is the beginning of his earthly ministry. All right, It's the early days of his earthly ministry. So he's in the Passover. He's in the temple. Verse 14, uh, found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them out of the temple. And the sheep and the oxen, that's why he had to make the cords, the, the, the little whip. And, and poured out the changers' money over through the tables and said unto them that sold doves, take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. He comes in, he sees the corruption, and he removes it. He throws it out. He cleans it out. But notice something that he doesn't do in John 2, that he does do in Mark 11. Mark, John 2 is at the very beginning of his ministry. He comes in, cleans it out. By the way, it doesn't take, doesn't last very long. Three years later, we're in Mark 11, and watch verse 16. Verse 15 does the same thing as he did in John 2, throws out the money changers, tables, and so forth. Verse 16 and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And there's the added, the difference. He throws out the corruption, the commercialism, the hypocrisy. He stops all, but then in verse 16, what does he do? He stops all the movement in the temple. So verse 15, he's getting rid of the commercialism, and the hypocrisy and the injustice because they're ripping them off. Deuteronomy 14, again, three times a year, they got to go to Jerusalem. He says if it's too big of a deal to take your, your uh, herd and stuff, 
selling at market, bring the money. The money changers are there, but instead of just dollar for dollar, now they've got an excise tax on top, so it's really a dollar and a half to your dollar and all this stuff, and they're ripping them off. He gets rid of all of that commercial stuff, corruption. But then verse 16, what's he do? And would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. He literally stops all the movement in the temple. Now, you've got to think about this. Who works in the temple? The priests do. Okay? You, if you were a good Jew and you're there... What are you going to do? You're going to come up. You're going to bring your offering, your sacrifice. He's going to take it over there. He's going to kill it. He's going to put the blood on the altar. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. He's got a whole list of things that he does. They're, but what, they're doing their ritual. They're doing their ceremonial things. And you know what the Lord does? He stops all of that. He stops not only the commercial corruption, but now he stops the religious corruption. And the religious activity is stopped. He's, in, he's been up there the day before looking for who's worshiping him. And there's nobody there worshiping him. They're worshiping somebody else. The adversary, Baal. And he comes in and he's, he stops it all. Then verse 17, and he taught, saying unto them, he's going to rebuke them. Is, not, is it not written, my house, Isaiah 56, shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. The whole activity, he throws it out. So he's, he throws out the commercial activity, the commercial corruption, and then he throws out the religious corruption. Why? Because he's cursed the fig tree. It's done. Come over to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. Passage that doesn't get a lot of attention. By the way, again, Matthew 23, if you look there at verse 13... But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 14, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Woe unto you, verse 15. Verse 16, woe unto you, ye blind guides. Verse 17, ye fools and blind. I mean, that doesn't sound like a meek and lowly guy. Verse 23, woe unto you, you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You know, he's going to call them, you're of your father, the devil. <laughs> He's not, that's, he's getting them. He's just sticking them. He's getting them guilty. There's guilty, guilty. Uh, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and here it is, and ye would not. He's in the temple. He's looking at their heart, and all that he sees, Mark 11, is total rejection. I'm here. I'm here to take care of you. I'm here to provide. I'm here to bless you. I'm here to do everything the prophet said I'm here to do, and you would not. Verse 38, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. 
The prophet Isaiah says, my house should be a house of prayer. It's not my house anymore. It's your house. Verse, chapter 24, verse 1, And Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. What does he do? He leaves. So what is he saying here? You ha- your house is going to be desolate. It's going to be empty until, well, verse 39, until I return. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And I'm who I said I am. I am the son of God. I'm, and he just leaves. You remember when Christ was crucified and that veil was rent? Do you remember top to bottom or bottom to top? Do you remember? Top to bottom. What did the priest see behind the veil? Who should have been behind the veil? The Ark of the Covenant, the glory, right? And you know what they found? Nothing. Nobody. Why? He's gone. He's cursed. Come back to Mark 11. Yeah, Ichabod is right. The glory is gone. Hosea chapter 10, verse 1. Israel is an empty vine. Gone. There's nothing there. The spiritual life is gone. And ultimately what the Lord is saying here is, I'm done with you. And that old religious system, that old mosaic system that you've corrupted and that you've taken over, and it, it's done. I'm on my way over here to shed the blood that will ratify that new covenant that's going to replace it. And that's what I'm on my way to do. And he doesn't... It, He's on his way. Mark 11, verse 18, And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. Look at the reaction. Total rejection. Total unbelief. He just stops the vain religious system, and here's their reaction. What are they trying to do? Kill him. For they feared him because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. He's teaching the people that that religious system that they're seeing out there in front of them is vain, it's empty, it's dead. It was the hatred of these, it was the hatred here of the adversary, obviously, but of the Pharisees and the scribes, and they're going to go kill him. So verse 19, and when even was come, he went out of the city. Now in Matthew, we saw this as well as in John, the Lord liked the camp. Okay, now it's not here in Mark. He would go into the city, do it, spend a day, and then leave and come back out to the Mount of Olives area to his tent. Spend a night, get a little something to eat, go in the next day. And so he was a camper, so camping's cool, okay? Just kidding. All right. My, my, my wife told me the other day that her idea of camping now is Holiday Inn Express. So I'm like, well, there went the trailer idea, huh? She goes, yes. I'm like, okay. I get her in the tent every now and then, but that's regardless. What, what's he doing here? It's even time he leaves. Their, their response to him, we're going to kill you. So he's leaving. He went out of the city. Verse 20, and in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter calling to remember. 
There's no fruit on Israel's religion anymore. It's gone. And that's, a, that's the critical picture that's being painted here. He comes in. He presents himself. He goes into the temple. He looks around, looking around. Comes out the next day, curses that fig tree, Israel's religion, no fruit on it, sees the leaves, that profession of having life, nothing's there. He comes into the temple, throws out the commercial corruption, throws out the vain, empty religious corruption, gets rid, stops it all. And there's that fig tree already dried up. Now, by the way, the new covenant, the messianic law, is going to be what Mark 13 is talking about when that fig tree buds. Okay? So that's a future event. By the way, if you look there in 11.13, for the time of the fig was not yet. You see, the timing issue here is what really everyone misses when they come through this. His first coming wasn't as king riding a white home. It was meek and lowly. What's he doing? He's, established, he's ratifying, shedding the blood to ratify that new covenant. But that old's got to be cursed. It's got to get done away with. So he does that, goes to Calvary and dies, shedding the blood of the New Testament, the new covenant, which is what he's going to tell them here in a little bit. And then he goes over and in his coming, second coming and establishing of the kingdom, he establishes the new covenant. The fig tree is budding. Okay? So it's a different, it's a whole new covenant relationship. The old covenant is gone. Now notice verse 21. Peter, <laughs> calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold the fig tree which thou cursed is withered away. That religious system... Uh, hold on here, look over at Romans 10. Uh, Paul, Paul nails it. it. It's fascinating in Romans 10 how Paul nails this stuff down so quickly with them. That religious system that God gave to Israel as a pure religion, they had corrupted it. Uh, Romans 10 verse 3, For they, and that's Israel, being ignorant of God's righteousness, going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. That's what they did. They, verse 2, for I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Why? Because they didn't do it God's way. They went out and did it their way. And that's exactly what's happening here. Go back there to Mark 11. Is he's cursed them. By the way, if you think about it, the la do you know what the last word in the Old Testament, Malachi 4 is? Cursed. How many books in the Old Testament? You remember? 39. How many in the New Testament? 27. How do you know that? 3 times 9 equals 27. <laughs> but you know that 39 is also 3 times 13. 13 is the number of rebellion. Cursed. Very interesting. You look at a Hebrew Bible. I have one at home. And the last book in a Hebrew Bible, the Jews' Bible, isn't Malachi 4, it's 2 Chronicles, and as they're going into the land. For, but here, it's cursed. So now, real quick, it's time to quit, but look at Mark eleven twenty two. 22. 
And we'll get into this next time. By the way, what does the law do? It curses you. It says you're not going to do it. You can't do it. You need help. Okay? Now watch Christ. Peter just said, look over there. It's withered away. And Jesus answering said unto them, have faith in God. Now, this starts a passage that is so greatly abused. Because it's a passage that people like to use. They pull it out of context. And they say, well, whatever you ask God, having enough faith, you'll get her. It'll get her done. And then when it doesn't happen, you know, because you'll say, uh, you know, verse 23, For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into sea, and shall no doubt, and shall no doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith will come to pass, he shall, he shall have what whatsoever he saith. Well, I was asking the Lord for the winning Powerball numbers the other day, $2 billion. It didn't happen. And I know people who've prayed this prayer stuff, this prayer promise, not happen and end up cursing God. Because it didn't work out. Well, God's not operating this way today. Sunday night in the Q&A, we talked about prayer. It was a you know, pretty good discussion about it, how he's doing it today. The thing here is, is look at the Lord's answer. Peter says, the withered the tree is gone. And you know what the Lord says? Have faith where? Have faith in me. Because what I just said to you, something far better is coming. And you just need to stay the course. And you need to stay what's on, stay on the course. When he says there, and answering saith unto them, ver- verily I say unto you, he's talking to the twelve apostles. You need to stay the course, guys. You've got, you've got to have faith in me. You have to have faith in what God says. He'll do it. And we'll get into all of the prayer stuff and what's going on there, the Isaiah 2 and everything with the mountain and stuff next time, okay? What I want you to see is... He presents himself. He goes into that into the city, meek and lowly. And then he says, he goes into that temple, looks around, no heart of worshiping him. Comes out, curses that old religion, that old vain religious system of Israel. Then steps over here, cleans out the temple, stops it all. Why? Because it's cursed. And now he's on his way to Calvary to establish, to shed the blood that establishes that new. Okay? Tremendous passage here. Again, Mark, the servant, is boom, boom, boom. Matthew and Luke, there's embellishments. And, you know, I told you, if you take out all of the conversation out of Matthew, you actually get less chapters in the book of Mark. But, it's, but Matthew's the king. And what do we want to know? We want to know what the king says. So we get it. Luke Presenting him as the man. How does he feel? What does he say? What's going on? What, you know, all those human details. Mark, he's a servant. We don't care where he's from. Just can he do the job? And now let's see him work. And that's what's happening here. Okay? All right. It's very good. It's very, and, and I'll be honest with you. The issue of understanding the word rightly divided, that fig tree stuff, you catch how he's doing, what, what's going on there, it literally saves you headaches 
for when to try to get stuff to balance out and to add up. And it just comes from rightly dividing the word of truth. Okay? All right. Dearly Father, we thank you for the evening, Lord. We thank you for your word and for the study of it and for the look into it and to see the wonderful things that you were doing with your folk, with your people, the nation of Israel, the little flock, and specifically, and what you're doing with us today in the age of grace, and then what you will do with the little flock in the future. In your name we pray. Amen.